Well, I was very glad that Alan prayed for Zimbabwe tonight. Um, the denomination to which I belong, um, the country of Zimbabwe, or as it was known, Rhodesia, um, holds very dear, uh, bittersweet, because it was in 1967, two years after the Universal Declaration of Independence, that eight of our missionaries, some of whom were known to me personally, and three of their children were killed, brutally killed. Some of the women were raped by the so-called freedom fighters, one of whom was Robert Mugabe. And um, I was the pastor at the time in our church in Hereford, and I remember telling the church and weeping publicly as I thought about the tragic end of those missionaries. And uh, sadly, the country went from bad to worse. Um, and as you probably know, they didn't have their own currency. Uh, in, 19, in 2009, they reverted to the American dollar. And teachers who only got a mere pittance of about 400 American dollars per month were fortunate if they picked up $100. So the country is in a desperate state and we should be rejoicing today that that uh, presidency has come to an end and hopefully there will be stability in the nation. Um, I'm just watching the time. If I have time at the end, I, will, I was at a conference in Leeds on Friday and I heard an absolutely thrilling story about Boko Haram. I'll only tell it you if I have the time at the end. Okay? Now, um, the passage that Alan read to us, I'm, I can't possibly deal with the whole of that. And in keeping with the theme that you've been dealing with over the past few weeks, race to glory. Uh, we have previously spoken about winning the race in Hebrews 3. We've talked about receiving God's blessing in chapter 4 and from that same chapter, overcoming weakness. And now, and there's one more in the series, I understand. Tonight, we're going to look at race to maturity in part of the passage that was read to you. And um, as I see it, um, the key verse is um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Could we get that on the screen, please? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. We seem to have lost it. Okay. Anyway, this verse says, let us go on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity. Um, most people um, have what I have called uh, the hurdle of romanticism in the course of their Christian life, particularly when they first become a Christian. Now, please understand what I'm saying tonight. It, it's not wrong to be deeply emotional or 
sentimental about our feelings for the Lord. Um, in fact, I don't think such feelings should ever be lost. It's part of the first love for the Lord that the Bible talks about. Uh, and perhaps, I, I say to you with due respect, perhaps some of us need to rekindle that excitement. The joy of when we first became a Christian. Um, but there is, I believe, sometimes an unhealthy kind of excitement and enthusiasm in the Christian life that rarely, if ever, lasts. You know, the bubble blows up and then bursts. And this you can usually be found in um, those who have tasted, for the first time, uh, new life in Christ. Um, at first it can make them giddy and unbalanced because this new wine that we get in Jesus is heady stuff. It makes them suppose that everything comes up smelling of roses. Well, that's okay if everything really does come up smelling of roses, but as every gardener knows, in the garden, as well as uh, roses, there are weeds. Not everything is fruitful, not everything is beautiful and even in the best of gardens and even though I had green thumb the other day on my lawn there are still a few weeds and um, sorry yes are we, are we getting there oh the memory stick oh right okay oh dear where are this it's up there That's another memory set for all. I always bring two to Church Lane because you seem to have a few hiccups with your system. Okay? So back to what I was saying. I find that there are some people who can get very excited about big meetings. They can get very excited about famous speakers. That's where they claim the revival fire is. But the problem is, that kind of fire rarely lasts. In fact, uh, it doesn't remove the weeds at all. In fact, at times it can encourage their growth. And excitement is mistaken for growth. Information is considered to be understanding and sentimental feelings are thought of as being commitment. But the fact of the matter is, and I please, I, I, I don't want to sound cynical tonight, I want you to understand what I'm saying. Having a good feeling, uh, you know, hearing the latest teaching on one of the endless God channels that you can get on the television, uh, going to a seminar is, in my view, very little to do with Christian maturity. No so-called word from the Lord, if it is from the Lord. No singing, I love Jesus, very enthusiastically in a, a, an exciting service will substitute for abiding commitment in Jesus. Maturity in the Christian life and having a personal and daily relationship with the Lord, I would suggest are inseparably 
bound together. You can't have one without the other. Romance and excitement is fine. Um, we had our 52nd wedding anniversary last Monday. And I was a very good boy. I bought my wife a lovely bouquet of flowers that, much to my amazement, she said the colours were in keeping with our living room. <laughs> now, imagine a man knowing that. It was just a coincidence. Uh, but flowers, candles, goose pimples, and all the rest of it, um, all have their place. But it's a personal relationship with the Lord that binds up the wounds, that stands the heat when the going gets tough, and that hangs on regardless of the cost. And if you haven't found out that, I'm sure most of you have, one day you will. It's the difference between having a fling on the one hand, and on the other hand having a real commitment to Jesus. Another thing we need to be very clear about when we talk about commitment is that being a Christian for a very long time does not make you mature. There are some Christians who have only been a Christian for one year. And I would say that actually they can sometimes be more mature than some people who have been Christians for 25 years. Now, normally in physical terms, um, adults are more mature than children. Though, to be honest with you, when people talk about being mature, uh, there could be a sting in the tail. They're not always being complimentary. Eighteen months ago, I was mowing the lawn in our front lawn, and by the side of our house, John will know this, there's a pathway. And two cheeky boys went by. And they, it was getting near Christmas. I was mowing the lawn late. And they took one look at my white hair. And they said, oh look, Santa Claus. <laughs> they thought I was mature. One dictionary definition of the word mature is ripe and ready to drop off which is what you might do on a Sunday afternoon after a big meal. But when the Lord sees us as being spiritually mature, then that in every sense of the word is a desirable thing. Making us mature is something to which he's totally committed. Little by little, says 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory. Won't you say hallelujah to that? In plain English, the Holy Spirit is working 24-7 to make us more like Jesus. That's what it means to be mature. Now, instead of saying, let us go on to maturity, or as it is here in the NIV, let us move forward to maturity, the older King James Version, unfortunately, renders the verse, let us go on to perfection. 
And that certainly is not what I'm talking to you about this evening. In this life, if you haven't already worked out, you'll never be perfect. Never. But we can grow in the Christian life, can't we? And that's what this verse is talking about. Not perfection, but maturity. And too often we can be a spiritual infant when we ought to have got much further than that. And that was the position of the Christian Jews to whom this verse in Hebrews was first addressed. Having spoken about some Old Testament truths, Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, it doesn't really matter, was finding it difficult to communicate this truth to them because of their spiritual immaturity. Now, sometimes when you're buying a house, as the pastor of Elam is at the moment, you will see in the brochure relating to that house the phrase, a mature garden. You've seen that in an estate agent. A mature garden. That's intended to convey the fact that the plants there are fully developed, giving the pos- best possible display and a whole splash of colour. A mature garden. But when you get there, <laughs> fiction often gives way to reality and you're finding yourself spending a bomb at a garden centre. It's not mature at all. And our spiritual maturity can be like that. It's not what it appears to be. It's not what it should be. Uh, Christian immaturity can show itself in a number of ways. And tonight I want to mention four ways in which uh, we can be immature in Jesus. Uh, Christians can't hear. Christians can't teach. Christians can't eat, and Christians who are immature can't see. And each of these symptoms are mentioned in Hebrews 5. So if we, and I've had to challenge my own life, if we spot any of these symptoms in our life, um, we are immature Christians. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, you're immature. First of all, immature Christians... Um, are those who can't hear. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 in the King James Version says they are dull of hearing. Uh, This chapter is talking about the deep significance of our relationship with the Lord. He's our great high priest. Through him we can have contact with God. But then suddenly, almost Midway through describing this marvellous truth, the writer stops and says, about this we've so much to say which is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Or as the NIV says, slow to learn. In other words, you're not hearing me as you should do. Or as a school teacher might say, it goes in one ear, comes out of the other. Now, I wonder how much of that is true of us. God wants to share truths with us, some new aspect of the Christian life, but we're deaf to what he's saying to us. We can't hear. We're dull of hearing. If so, we are spiritually immature. To be dull of hearing means having a sluggish mind when the Holy Spirit is wanting to communicate something of importance to us. When I was a kid, I broke my arm in three places. And it's still got a bend in it now. I just got back from holiday, and I had a girlfriend down the road. 
And I thought, I'll go see my girlfriend. And I got on my bike, and it was an unadopted road, you know, with lots of bumps. And I went right over the handlebar, and I broke my arm in three places. Had three different plasters of Paris on it, as they used to call it in those days. And after the three months of being in plaster of Paris, uh, my arm had been like that for three months. When they took the plaster off, what do you think happened? Went back up again like that, automatically. And in the same way, like an arm numbed when the circulation of blood is temporarily cut off, our mind can be numbed into a certain course of action when we stifle the voice of the Spirit. Jesus often reminded his disciples that ears are to be used. He said, he that has a... And it was hard for a Yorkshireman to say this. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, whilst perhaps we should take with a pinch of salt those who claim... Uh, to hear from the Lord every single day. Uh, and I don't believe that does happen. Maybe there is a place for our being more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Would you not agree? I love that story in the Old Testament about Samuel, a young lad working with the priest Eli. And he hears the voice of God. And you'll know the story well. And the old hymn writer talks about that, and this is what he says. Oh, give me Samuel's ear, the open ear, O Lord, alive and quick to hear each whisper of your word. God doesn't shout, does he? Each whisper of your word. Like him to answer at your call and to obey you, first of all. Immature Christians can't hear. God grant that that will not be true of us. Secondly, immature Christians can't teach. By this time, you ought to be teachers, says Hebrews 5 verse 12, but instead, you need someone to teach you the first principle of God's Word. All over again. Now, to be a teacher in the Christian life doesn't mean you have to be a preacher like I am. doesn't even mean you've got to be an elder like Andrew doesn't mean you've got to be a, a Sunday school teacher. doesn't mean that at all. We teach others by the way we live, by our example. Others are observing them. By our words and our actions, people should learn things from us. But that will never happen unless we're mature Christians. In one sense, of course, we will be teaching people things. But sadly, we'll be teaching them the wrong lessons. It is then that we ourselves need to be taught again the first principles of Christian living. Now, there are many, many examples that I could give of how to be a good teacher in the Christian life. But I want to give one of the main things that makes us a good teacher in the Christian life. And it's something that's emphasised again and again and again in the Bible. And that's the importance of love. Uh, Jan, you will know as a street pastor, uh, what people say to us, don't they, all the time, why on earth are you doing this? And we, we talk about our love for them and our concern for them. And 
That's a lesson they immediately understand. It's a very practical thing, but it's a very important thing. A constant theme in the New Testament. Yet it's in this area that immaturity among Christians can be seen at its worst. When it comes to loving those who snub us, or those we find it hard to get on with, sometimes we struggle. By our attitude, we show the very opposite of love. One writer I came across put his finger on this issue when he had to say this about a local church. I hope it wasn't Church Lane. I'm sure it wasn't. My faith in the church is not a faith in the drab and unbeautiful building on the corner of the road where Mrs. Smith won't speak to Mr. Brown because she was snubbed 20 years ago. Or where Mr. Jones resigns once a month in the hope of getting his own way and blackmailing the pastor. Or where Mr. Robinson sorry, I'm not referring to Bob Robinson, sings lustily that he's forgiven, but will not tolerate a stranger in his seat. Where Mrs. Jackson attends every service and every meeting and adores the dear pastor, but makes a hell of her home by her temper, her tears and her tantrums or where people wrangle and fight over trivialities, gossip behind one another's backs, and show less goodwill and good fellowship than one finds in a golf club or an army mess. I find that very challenging. Very, very challenging. And it's the hub of the whole matter, don't you agree? If we teach others by the way we live and by the way we speak, then what kind of lessons are we teaching? Spiritual maturity on our part is vital. Immature Christians can't hear, they can't teach, and thirdly, immature Christians can't eat. Hebrews 5 verse 13 says, You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness because he's a child. Now, every new Christian, when he first commits or she commits her life to the Lord, goes through a period, of course, when they need milk. That's why we encourage them, for instance, to read John's Gospel, the easier portions of God's Word. Furthermore, they need to be spoon-fed regularly by some instructional sermon. They need help in coming to terms with the truths of the Christian life. But the time must ultimately come when they're able to feed themselves. This often shows that a level of maturity has been reached. Do you remember the story of Peter Pan? It's the story of a little boy who fled to Never Neverland rather than growing up. Makes an interesting fairy tale, but it's rather pathetic if that same thing happens in Christians. They never grow up. We've got to grow up. And one vital way in which we do grow up is by regularly feeding ourselves on the Word of God. I think we would be absolutely shocked if we realised how little Bible reading 
goes on in Christians' lives. Regularly feeding ourselves on the Word of God. But just as a child can't hope to grow on a diet of cream cakes, and I was at an international meeting this morning, and we had food from many different parts of the world, um, some of which I would avoid like the plague, because I can't eat spicy food. Um, there were some lovely scones, or scones, and I thought, they're, they're a safe bet, because my wife cooked them. And they've got jam and cream on them. And I could see some people when we came to the sweet cows, going for the cream, the sweet things. But just as you can't live on a diet of cream cakes, so you can't uh, grow as a Christian unless you start reading the meat of God's word, acquiring some death. There is, of course, a very real value in meeting with other Christians to study the Bible. And I don't know, presumably you have Bible cell groups, house groups in the church, do you? And if you don't go to one, I would encourage you to do so. The use of Bible reading notes also, I think, help us in our daily Bible reading. Rather than simply saying, everyone, what shall I read today? Have some construction in how you read the Bible. Immature Christians can't eat. We need to get over that. And the fourth and final mark of an immature Christian mentioned in this passage is that immature Christians can't see. Hebrews 5 verse 14 says, Solid fuel is for the mature, for those who have had their faculties trained to practice by practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, to distinguish and discern a thing is the ability to see what's good for us and what's bad for us. Now, in normal physical development, such discernment is vital. For instance, a child going into the countryside might see a lot of berries. But in time they have to learn that some berries are poisonous, and I hate that time of year when you've just washed your car and the birds eat all these berries that are inedible for us and you've just had it washed and it, you know, splattered. You all know that sort of thing. But a child has to discern between those berries that are not good and those berries that are edible, those berries that you can eat. As an adult, we no longer need someone standing by our side making that discernment for us. We should know what's good for us and what's not good for us. Five fruits and five, you know, the sort of thing they tell you. And our level of maturity in the Christian life is such that we should learn what's good for us and what's bad for us, our spiritual diet. And unless we strive for spiritual maturity, that level of awareness will, not, will be impaired. Consequently, we'll never become the man or the woman God wants us to be. I'm told, um, you were recently a grandma, I'm told that a baby is able to focus properly, not able to focus properly, until six weeks. Yet sadly, after six or even sixty years of being a Christian, some believers can't see properly, see as they should. They are spiritually immature. About a year ago, 
And Chris and I um, were on a cruise down to the Canary Islands. And on the way back, we called in Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. And on the seafront there, they have a very, very impressive monument. And you will know that Portugal was a very, very important nation. And they had lots of sea explorers going to different parts of the unknown world. And on that was Vasco da Gama, Magellan, and other notable Portuguese explorers. And we ought to be like that in our spiritual exploits. Being an Italian and setting sail from Spain, not Portugal, Columbus actually isn't on that Lisbon monument. But when he did set sail, Spanish coins had stamped on them the motto, Nupla Ultra, Ultra, Nupla Ultra, which means nothing else beyond. And Columbus, um, Vasco da Gama, Magellan, and all those great and brave explorers felt that when they got to a country, there was nothing else beyond. In fact, prior to that, they thought they'd fall off the end of the world. But when, like those Portuguese sailors, Columbus discovered the new world, the motto on the Spanish coins was changed to plus ultra, meaning more beyond. There's even more beyond. May that be our vision in the Christian life. Yes, indeed, there is far more beyond. We sometimes sing the hymn, do we not? Be thou my vision. That should be our prayer. That we see things through the eyes of Jesus. So to conclude, immature people can't hear, they can't teach, they can't eat, and they can't see. Let none of that be true of us. Lord, there is so much more I want to spiritually hear. To teach, to eat, and to see. Would you give me ears to hear? Would you give me a life that is an example to others? Would you give me a readiness to digest the truths of your word? And would you give me the ability to see right from wrong? And when that growth begins to happen, then in the words of our key verse, we will go on to maturity. May God bless his word to our hearts. Now, can I just spend a few minutes telling you what I heard on Friday at this conference? I'm going to tell it verbatim. I may have certain facts slightly incorrect, but I can assure you this is what's happened. Wycliffe translators who are not known as being charismatic, and they will check anything that comes from that part of the church, have checked this story out, and they are absolutely convinced it is true, and it will shortly be printed in their magazine. A Christian in the south of Nigeria, the Christian parties in the south of Nigeria, had a phone call from the man up north, north in Boko Haram country, you know the people who took the schoolgirls off. A part of the world where my brother used to teach, he could not go there, it wouldn't be safe now. And he had this phone call from this man 
And he said, I need to see you. Can you come up north to see me? And he immediately thought, this is, this is a trap. There's no way I can go. But the man was persistent. And a week later, he phoned again and he says, are you coming to see me? So he said, well, let me think about it. I'll talk to my friends and get advice. And his friends prayed earnestly. And after prayer, he felt it would be safe to go. And when he got there, this man, a Boko Haram top leader, said that he'd been at an Islamic conference and he had gone into a room to meditate on his own. Maybe to get his prayer mat out and turn eastwards. When suddenly he had a vision of a man in white. And it was Jesus. And the man, Jesus, said to him, you need to hear the truth. You need to contact some Christians. The man was so alarmed that he went into another room where one of his colleagues was and he told him about this vision. And the man said, I have had exactly the same vision at exactly the same time. So, they arranged for the Christian in the south to go up north to meet these two Boko Haram leaders. The Christian thought at the most there will be maybe two or even six people there. When he got there, there were 2,300 people who wanted to hear the Christian. And the Christian preached the gospel, preached the truth about Jesus, asked them whether they wanted to commit their life to the one and only true God. 2,300 became Christians on that one day. Every one of them renounced their faith in Islam and turned to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a tremendous story? And there are accounts of that happening all over the world at the moment in different places. Shall we not pray that God will work even more in the lives? The Bible says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I was excited by that and I hope you're excited a truth, a story that has been completely verified. God bless you all.